Hello and welcome to a brand new series of the CFO Playbook podcast. I'm David McClelland. I'm a journalist and broadcaster. I cover technology and business with a special interest in startups. And here on the CFO Playbook podcast, just as it's always done, we'll be getting under the skin of how world-class finance leaders from across various industries set goals, manage teams, leverage technology, plan for the future, and so much, much more. And in this episode, we're talking leadership with finance leader Baron Anyangwe, and in particular about his holistic leadership framework. You either believe in the principle and, and the values that you stand for, you don't. Yeah, there's no mid-ground, there's no believe in some of them, but as long as it doesn't impact profits. But I, but I do believe that the more we are values-driven and the more our decisions reflect the values that we firmly believe in, that permeates in society into a way of being and for everyone. If you're listening to the show for the first time, then, well, welcome. Don't forget to subscribe. And as many of you have done, leave us a rating or review. Right then, let's get on with the show. This episode of the CFO Playbook is brought to you by Solday. Thousands of businesses from small to large corporations, including Mercedes-Benz, Sony, and Get Your Guide, use Soldo to make their business spending simple and efficient. To find out more or to book a demo, visit soldo.com. Baron Anyangwe has held a variety of leadership roles from head of finance at Marks and Spencer and Getter to most recently finance director at Love Coco and now finance director at We Are Fulfillment. Prior to that, he spent more than seven years as a management consultant with firms such as Accenture. Passionate about leadership, diversity and inclusion and social enterprises, Baron shares his expertise as a board member and volunteer for bodies in the UK and beyond. Baron. Thank you for joining us on the CFO Playbook. Thank you, David. I'm really excited about our discussion today. So, Baron, what's what's been your journey to working in senior finance roles? I mentioned a few of them in the intro just now. Was finance always the plan? Uh, and if not, what was it that steered you on that course? I, I studied as an engineer. Um, I've always been mathematical and, and analytical in, in my approach and thinking. And I thought engineering would be a, a solid base for for the things that I found interesting. Um, but after engineering, I was slightly a bit lost, not really sure of what to do. I worked as an as an investment trader for a couple of years, and and that was that was quite brutal for me from a personality perspective. And I remember thinking at the time, well, well, actually, you know, I feel we're all pushing towards a certain career path um, almost mindlessly and, and not intentionally. I've always been very, very interested in, in business leaders and, and what, you know, how they got to where they, they are. And what I found was a significant number of business leaders had a finance background, particularly um, as accountants. And so it felt like a solid foundation where whatever I would do, um, whether it be in business, um, either in on a commercial side of things or, or not, Having an accounting background or chartered accounting or qualification would be a solid foundation. I want to talk about your research into leadership and management. Uh, you call it the holistic leadership framework. Uh, I, I, I've taken a look at it and I, I want to find out more. So first of all, what is it and how, how did it come about? 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've always been interested in uh, great leaders, um, and great leaders are, and for me, not just leaders who are successful in the sort of worldly view of uh, monetary success, um, or even in so much as helping an organization grow, but, but great leaders for me are those who have been able to make a sizable impact, um, not only in their organizations, but in the individuals in their organizations and in society at large. And I've always been very keen to learn from them and sort of figure out how, how can I apply what they've done in my own life, knowing I won't exactly do exactly the same things that they've done, but you know, are there any lessons I can learn that enable me to be a, a better leader? Because I do feel making a, a good impact is important. And so I've always looked to see what can I do to make a, a good impact or a larger impact. Um, so in, in throughout my research, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is, you know, what are the top tips of being a great leader? I, I found that there were loads of great frameworks, um, but it felt like each of the frameworks were specific to either certain sectors or certain types of leaders or, or, or partially, you know, they told part of the story. And, you, you know, you've got loads of frameworks like inclusive leadership now, and you've got, um, you know, you've got people like Simon Sinek saying leaders eat last. And, you know, there, there are lots of different frameworks out there. But each of them, I felt, told part of the story. Um, and so what I tried to do was say, well, I, you know, and, and something that I do, you know, if you ask me who would be a great mentor, I the image or the, the vision I'd give you of a mentor would be actually pieces of different people that I've sort of together into this sort of imaginary person um, because I, I found not the one person who embodies all of that but you know I'm sort of taking bits of, of everyone to, to make this sort of ideal mentor for me and so I did the same thing with, with leadership and you know terming it holistic was it was trying to find a way of saying it and encap encapsulates everything from your personal to your professional life because I, what I found was lots of leadership frameworks were more focused on the professional side of things um, but and it almost felt like work and your personal life were quite separate but I have found I am me whether I'm at work or at home and I am unable to split uh, my personality to be at home one person and then at work completely different I find being authentic in whatever situation be it with my friends or my colleagues um, you, you get the same me so the, the holistic framework was was an attempt to basically say, well, how could I piece together a framework that could be applied on a personal level, um, on at a professional level, but equally um, could be applied at an individual, at a team, and at a company level. And um, as you can tell from how structured it is, I, I like <laughs> I liked the one answer that I could use in whatever the situation. So whether I'm you know at home or whether I'm in a team or whether I'm doing it individually or from a company perspective, I can apply this one framework and hopefully get the same um, intended outcomes. You have six P's in your framework. Hit us with the first one. Is that, uh, is this perspective? Perspective. And, and really, the, the, the principle of this is really trying to ask yourself at an individual team or company level, you know, how do you widen your perspective? Because we know that as individuals, no one individual holds all the information. Um, and and actually, the more, you know, hence why you start, you're seeing a huge amount of, of work across organizations going into inclusivity now, because it's it's been acknowledged that 
the more inclusive we are, the, the broader the perspectives we have, and therefore the more likely we are to find solutions that are the most optimum. Um, and so the, this P is really about actually, because we don't know everything, because we have blind spots, um, and because we can leverage the knowledge of, of others, um, whether their knowledge, their skills or experiences, how do we go about doing that? And so really, you know, how can we ensure that at any point we are broadening our perspectives? And, and that could be everything from doing more continuing professional development yourself. It could be everything from really trying to understand and look at things from a, a different perspective. So rather than approaching it from one viewpoint, trying to approach it from a different viewpoint, or it could really be about how you try and bridge the, the, the gap between the knowledge that you have and, and what you aspire to have and where you can get that from. Your next P is passion. Passion's a, a, a big one for me. And, um, uh, and, you know, interestingly, I mean, I'm, I'm borderline introverted. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's about 51% introverted versus, versus not being, but, but actually, but, but I'm still very passionate about one, um, getting the best out of myself uh, about others, um, doing the work that I do to, to the best of my abilities, um, and really ensuring that, um, you know, you are following what you really love and, and, you know, whether you use the word love or not, but, but I do think we all get the best out of ourselves when we are absolutely, whether it's in the flow, you, you hear that term, or we absolutely love what we're doing. Um, and so really the principle about being passionate is, well, actually, you know, one, how do you find meaningful work? You know, what is it that you could be doing that is meaningful to you? Secondly, how do you ensure that whatever you do, you're doing it to the best of your abilities and really bringing the best out of yourself? Um, and then three, you know, how could you be a role model to others? Um, so, you know, passion's a principle of ensuring that you're really getting the best out of yourself because getting the best out of yourself means you're more likely than not to get the best outcomes. And you know, all these principles are really underlying on how do you get the best outcomes? Um, and you will, you're more likely than not to get the best outcomes if you're getting the best out of yourself. Your next P is, well, you're cheating a little bit here because you've got three words. Uh, the first of which is protect. Uh, protect what are the, other the two? magic. Um, and... Wow, there we go. I was I wasn't expecting to hear this in a management framework. <laughs> I stole this phrase from MS. Um if if you follow MS closely, oh, wow. okay. protect the magic is um was a phrase they used in their five year strategy, their latest five year strategy. And um and and the the actual phrase was protect the magic and modernize the rest. I've um come up with protect the magic and ditch the rest um because and really the um the principle of this is and again you know if you look at different personality tests you've got strength finders you've got myers-briggs um everything trying to you know some are trying to tell you how to improve your weak points strength finders tells you about how to really focus on the strong areas and and i really do feel i actually you know when you look at how short life is, like how much time do you really have, you know, given the level of effort it, it takes, to what extent would that effort 
could you really drastically improve your weak points versus if you'd input if you'd employ that same effort into your strong points so the things that you are doing really well like you are more likely by focusing on those strong areas um to get even better outcomes and sort of you know it's not just saying you know these are my weak areas i'm not going to do anything about it but it's really it's being intentional about oh but these are my strong areas and, and protect the magic it's really about how do you do more of what works and less of what doesn't and that's where the ditch the rest is the stuff that doesn't work ditch it um the stuff that does work you know how do you do more of that you know so if there are systems processes ways of working that work for you to bring the best out of you to bring to get enable you to get the best outcomes do more of those if there are things that hinder that so whether it's way of working or or process or system then then find ways of of ditching them because actually we need to be ruthless in removing and stopping the things that inhibit our success and really be fully intentional about you know focusing on the things that do support our success so protect the magic is all about you know how do i make sure that if i've uncovered something that i think is a winning formula well let's make sure we we stick to that and and you know you look at um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and you look at the the investment strategy and and lots of people have sort of said well you know why don't they change it and but they found something that works it works for them there's no need to change so yes they could be making more money um but actually over time that winning formula has been consistent for them and has consistently delivered results and i think what what sometimes we're guilty of all too often really changing with with the flow of things and you know not really realizing that actually trust the process that if it works um you know stick with it and and keep going at it and and keep being intentional and in doing those things um so that that's what the the principle about protect the magic and, and ditch the rest is all about so if protecting the magic is about setting a course for success and identifying what the wrong what the less optimal courses are and focusing on a particular course the next p progress is about continuing on that course about setting waypoints about setting markers and milestones i guess to ensure you stay true to that course absolutely and 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 this is so important because well one when things are going wrong um you want to be able to assess to what extent are things going wrong because they're meant to go wrong at this point in time so it's absolutely normal or is it's going wrong because it's something that i haven't done um it's or it's going wrong because i'm deviating from from the plan that i had set um these markers in place these sort of milestones or the end destination help ensure that one we're headed to we're being intentional about heading to where we want to go to um but to it it it, it almost gives you that warm fuzzy feeling of i'm on the right course if you have markers along the way you know even if things are difficult you know well i'm still on the right path it may be difficult but i'm on the right path um if you don't have markers along the way then it's hard to know well should i pivot or not because it's i feel things aren't working according to plan um and is that just because i'm not being resilient enough or is it actually because i'm you know barking up the wrong tree and going the wrong way and should absolutely stop the, the way i look at this principle and i always um i think of mountaineering experiences and y- you know you know where the summit is um and often you can never see the summit until you're almost there but you do know that you are still continuing to head up towards the summit by points in time and markers along the way of well okay this is 
you know, stage one, stage two, stage three. Oh, yes, I'm at this hut. Um, I have two more huts to go. Yeah, you know what? I'm 100 meters from the summit. Those all encourage you to continue in that path. And, and you know, ultimately, yeah, I'm trying to get to that summit and I'm heading back down. But they, they're so important. Um, in one, to just keep you motivated on, I'm on the right path. Um, and if you're not, it then allows you the opportunity to, to sort of know, well, actually, I expected this outcome all the time. I would expect to have been here. I'm not there. And is that because my expectation was wrong? And and so the, the sort of course that I charted was wrong? Or is it actually because I'm going the wrong way? Or I'm, I'm really not set out to achieve what I, what I really want to achieve? Two more P's to go. And this fifth one, I personally am really pleased to see here, but it might raise some eyebrows amongst some other people. Tell me about play. Oh, play. You know what? They, they say finance folks are too serious. And I mean, maybe, David, you and I will change the inf- we'll change the, the discipline because play, it's so interesting. Uh, have you got any children, David? I do. I have two girls. Two? Uh, how old are they? Uh, one is 11. The other one is about to turn 14 as we record. Well, there, there you go. It's um, I, I've got a three-year-old son. Um, and it's remarkable because play is something that comes so naturally to them. I mean, even I put myself to bed at night and he doesn't want to go to bed. He will lay down and sing to himself for an hour. And 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 he'll be singing random things. He'll be singing the stuff he'd learned during the day. They're, they're not real songs. He'll literally be singing about books and toys and but but everything he does has an element of play and fun in it. And you know, I've often wondered at what point in life you know did we stop being playful? Um, because being playful, when I look at my son and I look at how he plays, interestingly, it's how he learns and. The playfulness allows him to explore. It allows him to try different things, to test boundaries, but almost to see what his limits are. Um, and and in business, you know, it's 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 when we stop being open-minded and exploratory of the art of the possible. When we stop being playful, we end up really constrained in our views and constrained in what we think is possible. And when you look at play and you look at um, Every all the other um, four P's that we've talked about, play really enhances all all of them. You know, if you're playful, you broaden your perspective. If you're playful, you're you can only be playful about stuff you're passionate about. I've never seen anyone play in a boring way. You you find something that works when you play and you stick with it. You know, you never really continue playing a game that you don't find enjoyable. Um, and um, and if you're playful and you're testing how things are going, you're really pushing the boundaries of what's possible. So you're, you're testing your progress. On, on that plane, you're getting better and better at it. So I find play is so crucial um, in announcing all the other the other four Ps because it, it really um, it really helps us. It fosters creativity. It helps us embed learning, but also it just really helps us de-stress. And when you look at work cultures and teams that are thriving, there's an element of playfulness within them, even in high-performance teams. So whether it's you know, rowing teams, the cycling teams, or your professional football teams. When you look at the relationships between the participants, there's an element of playfulness that allows them to still maintain that level of, of high performance whilst being um, exploratory and creating and really testing the boundaries. And so, you know, I, I find in business, it's it's extremely important that 
um, we are playful because that, that's where the great ideas come from. You know, great ideas don't come from people sitting there going, you know, right, let's find an answer to this now. You know, it comes, it, it comes from the unexpected and the unexpected creating an environment for the unexpected to, to bubble up means creating an environment where there's a bit of creativity and to do that you need an element of fun an element of play um so whilst financial stewards of the business we are guardians of of the, of the business's health and um and sustainability to some extent we have to maintain an element of likeness and creativity for us to do our work really well you know rather than just being someone who stands at the gates and says no well, actually, well, that's not really going to help your business grow. Nor is it going to help your business be sustainable. It may help your business in the short term, but certainly not in the long term. Um, so to some extent, our teams in finance and in the rest of the business do need to embody a, a level of of playfulness and creativity. And, um, you know, back in the day when Ajax was the, the best football academy in the world. Let's move on to the final and, well, possibly controversial. It, it sounds to me as though you've had some affirmation from your colleagues that this is a great P to have in here. And this is people skills. Unless you're working on your own, in your, in your own bubble, which again, might be the case if you are a, a solo professional athlete and in one discipline that involves no one else, um, you can ignore everyone else and be solely focused on yourself in everything else there's an element of interaction between people and when there's an element of interaction between people you have to figure out how do i get the best out of this interaction which means having to figure out what are the skills i need that maximize productive human interactions whether at a personal level at a team or organization level so I'd assumed people skills was a given, but it it's you know the, the feedback I was was it's worth it's worth you know reinforcing that actually we do need to in everything you know consider to, particularly when it's at a, a team organization level in everything we one we've got to accept that human beings are complex so there is no one size fits all and your approach with one individual or with one particular team cannot be the same um, with everyone else um, because everyone's complex. So we have to adapt and tailor our approach to whoever we're interacting with. It's difficult, of course, but put it the other way. Other people have to interact with you, right? And you may not be the, the idea of the ideal person to interact with, but they, they're trying to find a way of, um, of, of you know, building that relationship with you. So to, to some extent, we, we all have to we all have to look at how do we get the best outcome that involves interaction with others. And therefore, you know, how do we make sure that, um, you know, our emotional needs are met, but also the emotional needs of, of others are met. So how do we ensure, you know, others feel supported, encouraged, listened to, um, communicated, trusted, seen, you know, how do we ensure that we apologize when we make mistakes? Um, how do we ensure that we're being inclusive um, and we are, being um, open-minded on on different viewpoints and you know and really being authentic. Um, so, people skills are really the foundation of 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 all of that. Um, 
when you're dealing at a, at a team or organization level, because without it, you're not likely to get the best outcome. And yes, you can sort of say it's my way or the highway. That is one way of being. And some people have been successful doing that. You know, what is the framework that you can, that gives you the best likelihood of getting the best outcome? And that involves looking at people skills and looking at how, how best you interact with others. That is a formula that will most likely get you a best outcome. Well, it's uh, been really, really interesting to hear you explain the framework and to chat through the the different angles uh, that, that you have on this, the, the, the different P's. And what I particularly like in how you break it down is putting that principle in action, not only for you as you in your role within an organization, but going backwards within a team and also for you as an individual and, and even your description, even you're putting it into practice, follows that holistic view. There's one more area, Baron, that I want to touch on before we go, and this is sustainability. Now, in one of your more recent positions, it was at Love Coco, which in the middle of 2023, so just uh, less than a year ago as we're recording now, while you were there, it received its B Corp certification with an impressively high score as those things go. And, well, Love Coco, I think, got a fascinating story, hasn't it, with the whole Cadbury family history and the sale of Cadbury's to Mondelez International, and then James Cadbury and Dragon's Den. Um, but sustainability and this mission to drive positive change within the industry has always been right at the heart of its, of its mission. So from your role there, Baron, and perhaps some of your experiences elsewhere too, what can you tell me about the rise of B Corp businesses and, and what, what challenges, what opportunities this increased urgency to, to be or to become sustainable business, what, what, that, what challenges, opportunities that presents to finance leaders in particular? B Corp as a movement um, ha has been a way of, you know, really a way of trying to show that businesses can be different um, from just being purely profit-driven um, to really considering the environment as a key stakeholder. Um, and I think, you know, previously with, you know, businesses, therefore the, the shareholders, um, well, what, what Biko has sort of said as well, actually, if we ensure that environment is also seen as a key stakeholder, then actually you're looking to ensure that all stakeholders are, are benefiting from the decisions that the organization's taking. And, you know, organizations like Patagonia have been doing this for, for decades now, really showing that you can be very successful financially as an organization whilst also being very intentional about the impact that you want to make on the environment. And, and this B Corp movement's really been rising and rising with more and more organizations going, we want to align with this view of, you know, we, we want to be more purpose-driven and more um, intentional about the decisions that we make, you know, considering the environment um, in it. So, and that's been great. And I think that the more organizations that, that sign up to you know, I'm hoping at some point BCO isn't a thing because it's actually just a way of being for organizations. But at this point in time, it's, it's really trying to gain momentum and trying to encourage others to say, well, look at the organizations who've signed up and look at how well they're still doing whilst considering um, the environment as a key stakeholder. Now, and I think your, your second question about the, the challenges of it is, it, it is very difficult when an organization has to make a crunch decision between you know, one, the organization wants to exist for the long term, um, but 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 two, and and doing that means 
sometimes having to focus on generating enough profits to keep you know keep being sustainable for the long term um but also knowing that well there is no long term if we have no world right so you know there's this sort of um duality of well yes we want to we want to ensure we go for the long term but um, but hold on but if we keep doing what we're doing well we aren't going to have a world that, that that's going to be around so actually it's almost pointless you know continuing down this path you know with um, because we will have no no customer to serve. But it's that it's that conflict of the long term. You, exactly as you say, the long term versus the short term. And very often we we see in so many places, whether it's in business, whether it's in politics, whatever. I don't need to name them. But there is a lot of short termism that creeps in at the expense of long term goals and well long term sustainability. Absolutely, because I mean, you look at. You look at the average tenure of a CEO, and I believe it's something like three to five years. Um, the average tenure of a, a CFO, similar, um, three to five years. So you get into an organization as CEO, CFO, and realistically, you're probably going to be there three years, five years. Realistically, in that three to five years, you're probably then trying to plan your next move and how you put yourself in the best light for the next move which means there's so much pressure then for you to make decisions that, um, you know, selfishly make you look good and, uh, you know, oh, good for the organization, but but really, you know, your success is sort of tied to the organization's success because that's your talking point for your next role. You know, look at how I took this organization from X to Y. I'm personally as well really guilty of thinking, well, how do I show I made an impact? You know, what, what are the things that I can talk to about what I did? Or you have investors who, again, depending on the type of investor, you know, they're looking to make a quick return um, or they believe that, you know, you should be making larger returns than you are. So there's this there's this sort of conflict of what some of your stakeholders, investors, um, sort of saying, well, you could be doing better, you should be doing better. You, you don't have anyone speaking for the environment saying, oh, but hold on, folks. I remember um, once doing some work at um, Telefonica or to the, the telecommunications organization and and interestingly, in their in their offices in in Slough, in every meeting room, there is a blue chair. And every meeting that takes place, no one can sit on the blue chair. And that's meant to signify the blue chair is meant to signify the customer. And apparently, you know, it's a visual aid to say, well, have we considered the customer as a key participant in this meeting? Which I thought was quite brilliant. But you know, if we expand that to our decisions at, at a company level and at a board level on the environment, you're right, like actually who is speaking of for, for Mother Nature and does an organ, you know, d does a leader want to be bold enough to potentially make a decision that could jeopardize their role if other stakeholders don't agree with it, but actually firmly, you know, is firmly in line with their principles of we really want to ensure that the decisions we're taking are, you know, are, are considering the impact on the environment, and which is why the, the BCOM movement, you have to amend your articles to state that you will consider the environment as a key stakeholder. So it's embedded in the foundations of the organization and anyone can challenge and say, well, you haven't done that. You know, you've contravened your articles. So it requires bold leadership. And I remember seeing a post from um, Mark Cudigan, who was the, the previous CEO of Ellis Kitchen. Ellis Kitchen is a BCOM organization and... Um, Ellis Kitchen had just been taken over by some private equity organization. and But wh when you look at his posts, you know, his goodbye post, and everyone was surprised by the move. And when you look at his goodbye post, and you 
look at the list of people, I, mean, I read the comments because um, I thought this would be quite interesting. When you read the list of people who wrote, you know, thanks, congratulations, really the appreciation for what he'd done, everyone from suppliers, customers to competitors, sort of saying how he had really shaped the industry and really showed them how they could be more purpose-driven and really how they could make a better impact on the environment. I thought, you know what, that that is exactly the sort of leaving message I'd ever want to receive um, because it shows someone who has been so principle-driven to do the right thing um, that ultimately may or may not have um, resulted in, in them not being in the post anymore, but they stuck by those values and principles, you know, till the end. You know, we need bolder leaders um, who are able to do that, who are able to take that stand and say, this is what we believe in. Our articles are aligned with that. We believe firmly this is in the interest, not only of the organization, but of wider society. Um, and we want to ensure that the decisions we take consider that. And, you know, if I lose my role, so be it. Um, but I, I believe strongly in this. And our customers will either reward us for those decisions or not. And and hence why you now see lots of entrepreneurial startup organizations getting B Corp um, status. But they, they are biting at the heels of all the large organizations that have existed before them. Because lots of customers are saying, well, you know what, we're now putting our money where our mouth is. And we will start spending with organizations who align with our values. That was that was going to be my next question, uh, and you've you've segued into it very well. In as much as for a startup of Cocoa, Patagonia, another company you mentioned, have been going for a lot longer, but the challenges I would imagine are different for established businesses, some of which you've worked for, particularly in the food space, uh, are different for those larger businesses in terms of this end-to-end sustainability. There's a lot more stuff, a lot more culture, a lot more of the business, I guess, um, that would need to be shifted quite fundamentally in order to get those pointing in more of a B Corp di- direction. It, it, very good point. And, and it's it's interesting because at M&S, I worked on in the food business unit. I, I was a finance lead for M&S's Plan A, which is M&S's sustainability um, program. And we had these exact same discussions on take food when you look at um take poultry but when you look at the standards of poultry and you know red tractors are standard chickens that are sort of reared on a red tractor basis don't really have a great quality of life you know it's the bare minimum now if you wanted to farm organically it is hugely expensive because you're giving there's more space there's more uh feed for the poultry the quality of the feed is different all of that costs now who's going to bear that cost um, the organization could not fully bear that cost without um, losing, well, without making losses. And, and you know, if you're if you're trying to maintain the price of goods, so the question is, do you pass that price on to customers? Now, are customers willing to pay that price? And and again, this is where there's this dichotomy of what we say is is that really what we believe? Because we all say, oh yes, of course, we want chickens to roam freely and free range and you know um what well, free range eggs what let them live a good life but please do not do not make me spend more than three pounds on 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 a chicken right which is such a huge dichotomy of well it costs more than that um now as an organization like mls had to make the bold decision of well to some extent we believe this is the right thing to do to to in- ensure that the poultry have a better quality of life one it not only 
is that great, um, but also it results in better tasting food. Um, which, so it's in the customer's interest that the, the, the poultry has a better quality of life. Now, we will take a firm stance on actually some of that cost has to be passed on to the customer. Some of the costs can be absorbed. Some of the costs we can work with our supply to go, well, how do we mitigate that and reduce that as much as possible? Um, but some of the cost has to be passed on to the customer and, and the customer then has to decide. Then when you look at European countries, you know, in France, the price of meat is so much more than in the UK because actually the way they're reared is, is so different. But, the, the, you know, the, the consumers are used to having to pay for that. You know, if we want better quality, if we want um, stuff that has a better impact on the environment, we have to pay for it. And I think, unfortunately, in the UK, you know, particularly where we, you know, we're looking at products, so we're procuring product. you know, you can have strawberries all year round. Why? Why should you have strawberries all year round? Like, for goodness sake, can we not go... Four months without strawberries, right? Which means we don't have to ship it from, God, you know, four thousand miles across across the ocean. You know, so I think there's a lot of education, and and the question is, does an organization want to be bold and almost being the trailblazer and knowing their financial performance might be impacted by the decisions that they take? Um, you know, and Patagonia was the first to do it. You know, they took a firm stance on on changing the materials. Um, in their products and they knew well our customers may not come because we've got to increase our pricing we may lose profits Ivan Shri now wrote a book let my people go surfing great book um when, when they made that change they found they had more people bought their goods so um so sometimes we're, we're frightened as as leaders that these decisions will lose customers but i think ultimately you either believe in the principle and and the values that you stand for, you don't. Yeah, there's no mid ground. There's no I believe in some of them, but as long as it doesn't impact profits. But I, but I do believe that the more we are values driven and the more our decisions reflect the values that we firmly believe in, that permeates a society into a way of being and for everyone. Baron, before we go, the CFO Playbook podcast is brought to us by Soldo, and one thing that Soldo are are particularly keen on is about making the finance world easier to understand, more accessible and inclusive. And that's something I think we could all get on board with one way or another. The phrase liberate finance is uh, is a phrase that they are floating out there, to uh, so to speak. And I just wonder, when I say the word liberate finance to you, what, what, do, you, what do you reflect on? What does liberate finance mean to you, Baron? You know, the, the sentiment that I get from liberate finance, and really this is where, you know, if you were to ask anyone who's in a non-financial or what they feel of the finance function, it, you know, it's almost sort of a, they're the closed um, function, you know, they don't understand us as as, as business functions or, um, you know, they, it's like computer says no. And I, and I think when I hear liberate finance, it's really pointing to the fact that as, as finance colleagues, we really want to embody some of the, the principles that we've talked about. We want to show that we are taking into account broader perspectives in, in how we're coming to the decisions that we make and how we are supporting the business, um, that we're being a lot more collaborative and that we're being actually forward thinking on how we can best support our organizations, whether that's through new tools, new systems, processes, ways of working. Um, I, I do think we have to evolve as a function in terms of the value that we provide to businesses. And previously, it was just a case of make sure the books balance. 
now we are absolutely core in ensuring that the business is making the best decisions for its long-term um, sustainability and for the long-term sustainability of the environment. So I, when I hear Liberate Finance, that really asks us to be passionate about the things that we want to be passionate about, which is ensuring that great business decisions are made using the data that we have supported by robust challenge and insight um, and and discussions around the best the best solutions possible. Baron and Yang Wei, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the CFO Playbook Podcast. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.